All right, we're back on the Fan Morning Show, Sports at 590 Fan, Justin and Ailish. Let's bring in our insider, brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. That is Brent Wallace, co-host of the Coming In Hot podcast. Good morning, Brent. Good morning, Justin. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, so Michael Anlauer, he's the winner. He triumphs. He's also a beer league goalie. So do we have a new oh, EBA in go. Ottawa? Yeah, this, I want to see him show up for practice. Hey, hey guys, listen, I, you, I know you need a goalie today, and it's going to be me. <laughs> I mean, uh, we've had Curtis Joseph come through mm-hmm. with a, a hockey bag, and we're like, and really excited about that. I mean, I, I think, oh, you know, yes. when an owner comes in and they spend the money, they can do what they want. So if he wants to put they himself on the e yeah. list, uh, maybe yeah. he can make that happen. Uh, okay, so it's Ann Lauer. It's very exciting. Uh, but what does it mean for the Ottawa Senators franchise? Uh, so I'm trying to think. I've covered this team for like 25 years, and I don't know, perhaps, of a bigger day. And I say that as all due respect to the when Eugene Melnick came in and bought the team, which looked like it was in complete schmozzles and bankruptcy. But this one sets this team on a completely new course. And, guys, you understand, like, when you make a lot of money, people don't usually like to be happy for you all the time and tend to be jealous. Well, I can't find yet, and no one's come to me with a bad word about Michael Ann Lauer. And so that speaks to his character, which I think is huge, especially in this city and the way things have gone. Uh, and then all his other partners, which they have yet to be all named, but they appear to be all from Ottawa. So now you've got Ann Lauer, who uh, is in the National Hockey League. As we know, he owns part of the Montreal Canadiens and, of course, in Hamilton with the OHL. Um, but he understands hockey, and he's got a bunch of guys with money or a group that have a, a lot of money behind them, and they all know and understand the auto market. So take us behind the scenes in this process, because we're only getting the Sparks Notes version of uh, maybe a little bit more drama than anticipated. But for him to have won this bid, um, combination of experience, as you mentioned, maybe the Ottawa connection seems like a great guy, has a yeah. hand in hockey, e-bug situation. Uh, is that <laughs> is that the winning formula? Or was there still a little bit of the other teams or other um, submissions kind of pulling out that, that helped push this across the line? It's such a great question. So... Even before uh, Eugene Melnick had uh, passed away, put the team up for sale, there was a lot of people circling, trying to find a way to buy this team, or at least looking like being interested. And Ann Lauer was one of them at the time, as was the Kimmel Group, another one. Um, So they've always kind of stayed there, and they've always been at the forefront. But as this process went on, and, and it's tough to figure out all the twists and turns, but the Ryan Reynolds group appeared to be the front runner early on because it was Ryan Reynolds and he had all the excitement and the NHL really wanted him. And then, then all of a sudden he dropped out and, and it became the, uh, now I'm, I don't know if I always say this right, the Apostopoulos group. And he had all the money and he was the front runner and he made the biggest bid. And then it became the Kimmel family. And so I don't know if it was through attrition or if it really was the, ultimately the best bid there was. It just got really bogged down, really frustrating, really public which it should never have been. Uh, I, but I think the Michael and Lauer group was always the front runner to me, always the best hockey decision for this group to make was to bring him in. And maybe the person willing to pay the tax. I like, I don't know if we got clarity on the capital gains <laughs> things, but like, that's the thing that purportedly scared the Reynolds group away. I, I, like, again, this is a lot of people with a lot of money uh, trying to figure out who's going to spend the most money. Oh. So it's interesting, but like, did they get over that hump with the capital gains? So I, I don't know the answer to that one, and that one blows my mind. But there's been a lot throughout this process that doesn't make a lot of sense. So the Reynolds group walked away because they wanted a 30-day, allegedly, 
They wanted a 30-day negotiating window to settle the downtown arena. But you can't do that because you got all the other groups who are like, well, wait a sec, that's not fair. So then the Reynolds group balked. And then the, uh, the Apostopoulos group, I believe, is the one that walked away from the capital gains because mm. they're like, this, this doesn't make sense. Like, uh, we're giving you a billion dollars. Figure out a way to pay your own taxes. So <laughs> that was part of the whole process with this. It got so delayed. It got back in May, they're like, hey, this is going to be it. The bids are coming in. We're going to be done. And then all of a sudden, well, we can see what else is going on here. Maybe there's a few more dollars we can squeeze. It, people got really frustrated. Ryan Reynolds, I think, felt that he was negotiating against himself at one point. And he's like, this just can't continue. And, and it's too bad. I, I think they scared away some really good people. Um, but I will say again, ultimately, I think Michael Landlauer is the perfect person to own this franchise. Okay, so he comes in with a maybe a short-term to-do list, a long-term to-do list. <laughs> what do you think um, are the like the pressure points if he's in here for the next I don't know, let's say six months as a short-term? Like, what's on the to-do list, and then how big and how futuristic does he start to look down the run of what the Ottawa Senators can look like? So, which so with him already being in the National Hockey League as a as a part owner, as we said, and and owning the, the Bulldogs in Hamilton, I, I know they've moved. Uh, this year out of the building, but uh, with him already understanding the hockey world, he doesn't have time to sit around and wait. And when he took over the Montreal Canadiens back in 2009, he was part of the group that bought the Mol- uh, with Molson that took over from Gillette. And it happened on June 20th. So right around the exact same time. And they said, we want to be at the draft. It's important for us to be controlling at the draft, which makes sense. Uh, so I think he's going to get to be able to, make says on what happens right now uh, very shortly, probably within a week, but leading up to the draft, I think he's going to have control. Uh, the biggest question, and everybody's all over this, is that what happens with the GM? Like, it's no secret that Ottawa has struggled at winning hockey games in the last seven years, and under Pierre Dorian, they have not made the playoffs. Uh, and you always want your guy. So I, I believe in short order, they will make a decision to have a new general manager. What happens with DJ Smith and the coaching staff is a great question. The players love him to death. I don't know that that necessarily makes you win hockey games, but Brady Kachuk and Tim Stutz, uh, the heartbeat of this franchise, if you will, on the ice, love DJ Smith. Is it enough to keep him? I don't know. He's got one year left on his contract, and the team has an option for the second year. Uh, I don't know he gets through it, but he might. He might. There is that rumor about Patrick Waugh. And I don't know how serious that one is, but that would certainly be a complete opposite decision if you go from TJ Smith to Patrick Waugh. Okay, so all that's really interesting because I was under the impression uh, that he, you know, he'd have to go through the process and maybe he wouldn't get full control or at least be like in the building making moves and making decisions till late in the summer. But if he's at the draft, he can get things going. That may clear up a few things because I thought, you know, if he can't get control till late in the summer, how damaging is this going to be to the on-ice product if they can't well, really make decisions, right? And that's the point, right? Like, I'm not going to tell you now I'm going to give you a billion dollars or whatever it is, 950, and then in two weeks later, you trade my three best players. So yeah. so that's why he's allowed to have some kind of control over this. Now, this isn't – I don't have this written down on paper somewhere that tells me that this is going to happen, but I was told just go back and look to see how things went in Montreal when he took over there under the Molson uh, group and how they were able to run the draft. Ottawa, by the, uh, by the way, um, doesn't have a pick, I think, until the fourth round. And they do have to understand what they're going to do with Alex Dabrinkit. And so 
they can do it without a GM necessarily in place. Like, hey, the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to the draft if Bradshaw Living isn't going with them. And then years ago, uh, Ottawa, Peter Shirelli, he couldn't go to the draft as the Boston GM. He had to stay in Ottawa. They wouldn't let him take over until after. So this happens before. This isn't new if he's not at the draft. Um, and they have Ryan um, Bonus, uh, Rick Bonus's son, and they also have Trent Mann. They're two assistant GMs more than adequately uh, capable of running the draft. So uh, if they replace Pierre Dorian in the next couple of days or a week, it won't make a difference, really. It'll help the Ottawa Senators move forward. And they got to make a decision on Alex Dabrinkit, ASAP. I think one of the most interesting things about this entire process is that all these ownership groups or prospective ownership groups had their hockey people already in place. And like, to me, that doesn't really make any sense. Like why would the Melnick, uh, Melnick's daughters care about like who the incoming general manager might be with the money coming in? Like it only really, what only really matters you'd think is the money, but uh, Ann Lauer, not unlike the others uh, is believed to have someone connected with him, a hockey person, that hockey person being Steve Steos, reportedly. Yeah. Uh, what have you yeah. heard about Steve Steos uh, in terms of, you know, the likelihood of him taking over? And what do you know about him as like a hockey person and someone who has his own views and beliefs and way of running things? Like what's, what's Steve Steos going to bring to the Ottawa Senators if in fact he lands there? Great question. But I, I'm going to back that up a bit just to say uh, all these as far as I know, all these uh, bids had their high-end hockey ops people kind of picked because they knew when they if they got the bid, they had to be ready to go and hit the ground running. Like Michael Andlauer wanted this franchise June 1st. I, I'm pretty sure he's told them, I want this by June 1st so we can be ready to go for the draft. So everybody – and then people like – it's reported that Peter Shirelli and Steve Steos and Patrick Waugh are part of the Andlauer group. I don't know if that's all reality at the moment, but let's just say it is. They've all been doing work on what they want to do with franchise players and how they want to trade or make moves or do whatever. So that's why they came in with those people. But as for Steve Steos, uh, I've never sat down and had a really long conversation with him, but we've been uh, at world championships a couple times together and I've, I've, I've spoken to him, but what I've been told about him is uh, how bright a hockey mind he is. Now, that sounds like fluff, and it may very well be, but he is highly regarded. Like Edmonton, I don't think, wants to give him up. And so there is some issue of maybe he's not going to be able to get out of Edmonton where he's a senior or a special advisor. They're pegging him, I think, to be the next GM of the Oilers. So um, he comes highly regarded. Like it's like people are now fighting over him. Um, it's a great feeling to have. I, I, I think ultimately he ends up in Ottawa, but he's certainly regarded as someone who's uh, young but extremely brilliant and ex knows how to get things done. And he's been um, with uh, Ann Lauer for a few years now in Hamilton. We're speaking with Brent Wallace, co-host of the Coming In Hot podcast. Uh, sorry if I cut you off there. Um, I wonder how thirsty the market was for Kyle Dubas because we certainly were intrigued by the Battle of Ontario and Kyle Dubas's next steps and the home, the guy that you know <laughs> loved the Ottawa Senators growing up. I know. But uh, was it as uh, exciting or real um, in Ottawa? Oh, I was hoping because I thought, like, this can't happen. Like, you can't have the GM of the Leafs come and be the GM of the Sens. It'd be too good. Uh, it would have made for great storytelling. But I don't think it was too much of a reality. Just with so much going on of trying to get this sale done and dragging on. I, if they had gotten this deal done, maybe back in June, there might have been a better chance of Kyle Dubas even at least interviewing and seeing if this was a fit for him. Uh, but, boy, would that have been I, – I was looking forward to it. Honestly, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
He's the only GM on Twitter that follows me, so I have a, a huge uh, <laughs> respect for uh, Kyle Dubas. He may have been muted, but at least he says he follows me. There you go. That's nothing that we can say, I don't think, Ailish, unless uh, you got a follow that I don't know about. No, no, I don't. <laughs> we're, we're checking uh, daily. It Actually, might have been a mistake. Hey, let me just say he could have done it by mistake. No, you better no, check no, he no. doesn't unfollow you after this. No, I think uh, I think there's some merit to it. Uh, Daniel Alfredson, of course, is a you know, massive, massive name in Ottawa and someone always connected to the franchise. But for whatever reason, uh, you can't push it over the line in terms of like real and true and meaningful uh, impact and involvement. Uh, it, it should the expectation be that Ann Lauer brings Alfredson into the fold in a major, major way? All right, so let's talk to the Daniel Alfredson side of things. So, uh, yes is your answer, and it's going to go like this. Uh, Ann Lauer is the 90% owner, but it's going to get broken down because there are other investors, and one of them is the Malholtra family, which owns Claridge Homes. They're worth over a billion dollars. They built uh, lots of land or developed lots of land in Ottawa. Um, they are basically the son's best friends of Daniel Alfredson. So, uh, and then it goes even further, like some of the smaller investors, one of them is Cyril Leader, who used to be the founding partner of the Ottawa Senators, one of the three guys. And then he was also the uh, the president. Um, Jeff York, who is partner of Farm Boy, owned by Sobeys, he's in. His brother, Jason York, who plays golf every day with Alfie, used to be teammates. Uh, he used to play for the Ottawa Senators. So all kinds of ties that... Uh, if Alfie is not part of this organization, it, I, I don't know. It would be, I, I can't imagine. I just, it's yes. There's just no other way around it. He will get a role here somehow, some way, and be part of this organization. And everybody knows it. He might have or a small minority should. stake. I mean, <laughs> with might. all those connections, maybe he could figure that out. Um, well, I, you know what? He might be part of the group. I don't know everybody yet, but he is, it's funny to watch because every group that's come to town has contacted Alfie about joining their mm. bid. Mm-hmm. And Alfie has said all along, um, I apologize. I don't usually ever use nicknames, but Daniel Alperson is just known as Alfie, so I apologize. <laughs> oh, that's okay. um, he has always just said, listen, I'm going to wait till this is over, and then I will talk to the group that uh, finally wins it, and then we'll discuss it. But uh, having the group that he's got now, there's just no way he's not part of it. Yeah, pretty good to be Alfie right now, uh, I would think. Uh, last one for yeah. you here, Brent. Um, you know, we've been talking about the Battle of Alberta, or Alberta, Ontario being fully reignited here for a couple years, but it hasn't got there. Uh, what do the Senators need to do, strictly from an on-ice perspective, to, to get to the point where they can finally, you know, contend? Because that talent pool is very, very impressive, and we've been talking about it for a while, but it just hasn't happened. So what needs to happen this summer, on-ice, roster-wise, for the Senators to be a playoff team next year? Oh. Uh, uh. Well, is this the second hour of the show? We're gonna... <laughs> so it, they need a goaltender, without question. They need a bona fide number one goaltender, and I want them to go get Connor Halibut. That's easier said than done. That's number one. Number two, they still need to beef up their blue line. It's, and especially on their bottom pair. Now I, people are like, well, it doesn't really matter in your fifth and sixth, but they don't have a lot of jam on the back end. They, just, they need a more physical presence, and the same up front. They've got a great top six. It doesn't push you around. It doesn't intimidate you. And they don't have any real depth scoring. Like, you look at the Vegas Golden Knights. Now, I understand they had injuries this year, but they didn't have one 30-goal score on their roster. They had three 20-goal scores. But they had 12 guys who scored 10 goals or more. Ottawa had eight, despite the fact that they had uh, three 30-goal scores. So, uh, all I'm saying is they need to spread it around, which is why they need to move Alex Dabrinkit. Uh, one, because of his dollar amount and his contract status, but two is they need to find someone that's got a little more jam to play up there that can 
create some space. Well, Brent, Other than that, the roster's fine. Yeah, well, I, I'm excited to stay tuned with this journey. It's too bad we don't have the uh, Dubis connection this time around, but we do have the Battle of Ontario, and I think it is improving, and we'll have to chat with you uh, in the coming uh, months and this season to see how ignited it is. Appreciate you coming on. We just need Brian Burke to hop over. Maybe oh, that's what we need. We'll, put a, we'll, we'll give a message, maybe. Maybe he yeah, follows one of us. <laughs> there you <Yeah>. go. <laughs> Thanks, Take Brent. Care. We'll chat soon. Appreciate it. That's Brent Wallace, co-host of the Coming In Hot podcast. And our insider brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's obviously good times, like a plenty, like everyone kind of connected. It's, it's, if you were a part of this winning bid, potentially, which a lot of people apparently are, yeah, there's, there's a real opportunity here, but the on ice product is really close too. like, they have a lot mm-hmm. to work with and Alex to bring it as a trade ship. Like you can get a lot done just this summer alone. It's exciting times in Ottawa for sure. I wonder if they'll have the big uh, Jurassic Park like welcome for their newest owner when it is all debut. Somewhere down by the arena. We'll see. Um, We have two more guests on the show this morning. We've been talking about having Bobby Webster to wrap everything up. But before him, we have Randy Foy, former NBA guard. So he's played and uh, been underneath Darko Ryokovic. He also played with Kyle Lowry at Villanova. He's been a part of Jokic's rookie year. He's connected in all ways, NBA. So he's going to chat with us after the break, and then we'll tee up Bobby Webster to wrap up the show. Not sure we'll get a full wake and rake in, but we could put a, a quick parlay together. So send your picks in at 590-590. All that to come on the Fan Morning Show. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back on the fan morning show, Sports at 590, the fan. A big 30 minutes left of the show here. Back to back guests. Talking a lot of Darko Ryakovich. Start with Randy Foy, former NBA guard who spent some time in OKC with the newest Toronto Raptors head coach when he was an assistant coach. How's it going this morning, Randy? Hey, how's everything going? We are living in an exciting time right now in Toronto. We got a new head coach, and we're trying to uncover whatever we can about Darko Ryakovic, who's you know a new name and someone that we're learning a lot of. So, how is he different than any other assistant coaches that you've had a time um, to play under in in your lengthy career? Yeah, he was he was great. Um, I was in Oklahoma City with him when we made that run to the Western Conference Finals. And the one thing that that jumps out to me about him is just attention to detail. Um, he has the incredible sense of, you know, and Justin, you know, I'll always see him jump up and, and tell Billy Donovan during the game, you know, you, I think you need to do this or you, you need to do that just to Justin on the fly. And the, like I said, the work ethic part where he always wanted to shoot at night, you know, you can call him at nine thirty, ten thirty at night and say, Hey, I'm going over to the gym. Can you meet me there? And he was always there. And if you felt as though you were down or you weren't having a great, uh, you know, practice or game, the first person to come over to you and say, hey, you know, keep your head up. Um, tomorrow's a new day. Um, just keep chipping away. Um, but for me, you know, he was my, my shooting coach, my film coach when I was in Oklahoma City with him, and, and he was unbelievable. 
So clearly that's uh, really strong in terms of being supportive, right? Being there for you, being there to help when in times, but he's going to have to be more than supportive as a head coach. He's going to have to be demanding at times because uh, there's a little bit more responsibility when you're running the entire operation. So just in terms of what he demanded from his players, what he wanted to see from you guys, how he felt you guys could improve, what did he preach the most? He always wanted more. He always, he always was searching and digging for more. You know what? What else? You got more. I know you, you. You hit five threes. You know, give us six. You know, get a stop on defense. Um, the challenges. You know, guarding Steph Curry coming off these pin downs and these split screens. Uh, it, the attention to detail when him and Clay Thompson come together. This is how you have to guard it. If you're you're defending Draymond Green, you have to pressure the ball. If those two guys are going into a split screen, so he's demanding. You know, he's um he's tough. You know. At the, He's he's one of those guys that, you know, push you to the limit, but he knows when to pull back. So I think he'd be great for the Toronto Raptors. We've been hearing a lot about him being a player's coach, um, and I'm sure you've had a few in, in your lifetime, but how does being a player's coach actually resonate with the players? Like, how does that help create a culture? How does that communication really help, you know, with leadership in terms of the transparency between the top and the bottom uh, when you hear you have a player's coach? How do the players feel about that? I just think it's a happy medium where, you know, it's a long, long season. So you have to be able, as a coach, you gotta you gotta make practice fun, but at times you gotta make practice demanding. So preseason is hard. Preseason is hard, but understanding, you know, at the three hard days, you know, it probably needs to be a fun day if you're going four days straight, or if you're going two days really hard, then the third day may be light. You gotta understand as a player's coach when you're in the season and you're flying from city to city, you, you know, you might not want to hit the floor with veteran guys. You know, if you have a younger team, then, yeah, you might want to go and have a walkthrough. But if you have veteran guys on the team, you might want to watch film. You know, you might want to watch film and talk and test everyone's temperature, you know, see how they're feeling. Because a lot of times people think when, when you're on the road and you're traveling and you're flying and you're playing games, they think it's a lot of the physical part. Sometimes, you know, when great shape is the mental part. So sometimes you need mental days where, you know, you don't need to put stress um, on your body or your mind. So you need to sit back and, you know, talk to the coach, talk to th- through things, talk to um, things as a team. And sometimes you need to just let the veterans, you know, have the, have the floor where they can talk to the younger guys and lead that way. And if you look at what Denver um, just did, it's a lot of, you know, Jeff Green, it's a lot of DeAndre Jordan doing a lot of the talking and Mike Malone is there, but he's basically saying, yeah, you know, his message is clear and it's coming from his leadership of his older veteran guys. So I think dark, I think Darko gets that. And I think he understands that, you know, with this team that he's going to have, especially after Van Fleet, you know, opting out, I think this team might be a little younger, so he might be able to push him, but he's one of those Serbian guys that's, it gets after it so he understands that you know every day is a work day but you know you also need some days where mental days where you, t- you have a day off what is about serbia uh, you played with Nikola jokic a little bit i mean his rookie season we're gonna ask you about first impressions in a second but darko Nikola jokic serbia is having a moment but is there something in the serbs that is like clearly obvious whether it's work ethic or the way they approach basketball is there some sort of overlap there just the, just that entire region um you know, is Yugoslavia, right? It was together and it split. Um, I'm not sure what year, but 
just that entire region is um, just really skilled, tough, hard-nosed basketball players. You know, my, my college teammate played in Serbia, and he said it's probably one of the best leagues that he ever played in. Um, he said practice twice a day. He said the morning practice was a lot of um, fundamentals, footwork. Um, then the, the kids went to school, and then they came back, and, and they scrimmaged along with um, some conditioning. And he said that was their their day, but they did that for six days out of the week. So I just think that the, their attention to detail, the film, um, working on the little things to create um, the right habits, I think they understand that, and that's why they're so good there. So you mentioned that Darko's always pushing, pushing you to be a little bit better. You hit five threes, make the sixth. Uh, I, I imagine shooting is a big part of that, but in your experience with them and, and looking at your teammates, uh, in which ways did your teammates and did yourself improve just by learning from him? The feedback. For me, it was the feedback. Um, because working with him, obviously, the first couple of times, really didn't say much. He just put me through some drills, and he watched me. He said, hey, you know, when, when you're missing shots, you know, you're a little flat here. Or, you know, I can tell uh, when you get tired in the game. When you get tired in the game, uh, it needs to be a little bit more attention to detail, usually your legs and your shot and, and holding your follow-through, basically form shooting. So when these conversations happen in practice and, you know, if you hit a three and, and the coach you work with or if you make a good play, the coach you work with, you kind of look over at him and give him a wink or right during the timeout, you know, right before the coaches get there, he'll, he'll come over and he'll say, hey, you know, exactly what we talked about, just continue to do that, um, looking good out there. Just It's just a sign, you know, that someone always have your back. You know everyone has your back, but the person that's working with you, the person that's putting the time in with you, uh, when they see you doing the things that you've been working on and, you know, trying to, accomplish and practice and you, and you do it well in the game and they give you the head nod or they give you that thumbs up, it feels good. And he's one of those guys that understand right away when you do something well, he, he acknowledges it and lets you know. We're speaking with Randy Foy, former NBA guard. So you got an opportunity, as we mentioned, to play with uh, Nikola Jokic and, and it was in his rookie year. So as a young guy, um, were you able to see that level of stardom from him now and just his rise to being the best player in the NBA and having that trophy and being kind of a goofier guy too, right? We're learning a lot about the horse guy and, and the guy with not a lot of um, time for the media, right? He wants to be his own reserve self and he's very humble and all of that. So just your opportunity to play with him and where he is at now. To, to be honest, I, I would be lying if I said I saw that right away. Two-time MVP, um, multiple all uh, um, NBA teams, NBA championship, finals, MVP, I'll be lying to you. I was like, yeah, he's going to be that. <laughs> because at the time, Yusef Nurkic was on that team, and he was getting more playing time. He was, he had the better numbers. But I think Yusef Nurkic had something. I think he tore Patella a little bit. And when that happened, I think Jokic stepped in. And I can remember him playing against San Antonio and having a really good game. And if you remember those San Antonio teams, you know, it was the – a lot of years and with Tim Duncan and, you know, Ginobili and Parker and those guys, but they still was really good with Kawhi, Danny Green and those guys. And he, um, he just was, he was just moving in a certain way where Tim Duncan was a really great team defender where he can push you into small spaces. And the, the, you know, the Spurs defense is really good. They help each other out. 
And Tim Duncan will push you into these spaces. And as he pushed you into these spaces, you know, they were helping. And he would push Nicola in these spaces, and he would turn out the way and just shoot, like, weird shots, like floaters. Like, big men are not supposed to have touch like that. And he was like, okay. And then we see him in practice, get there an hour before, you know, lift, you know, doesn't – no definition from lifting, you know, you don't see anything, but you know, he's strong. And, you know, I just, the one thing I know is just like death, like just the, the work ethic and just constant, um, the character that he was and just, you know, joking around, nothing really bothered him. And he just was always free. And the, the toughest or the most tense situations was just free. And you can see it. Like he could be in a situation where, you know, a team going to 10-0 run, tie the game up. He'll get the ball there, um, the dotted lines, and shoot a floater off the wrong foot, and it goes in. He, like, he's not supposed to make that shot. But that's because of his work ethic that he, you know, works on his game when no one is watching. Lots of turnover, of course, uh, in Denver, Randy, but I'm sure there's a lot of people, Jokic included, and Michael Malone, you played for him with his first year in Denver uh, that you have experience with, whether it's, you know, there might be like security guards and other personnel. I'm sure you're very familiar with a lot of people who had quite the night on Monday. What were your emotions like watching the Denver Nuggets win their first ever NBA cool. championship? It was cool, man. I felt like I, like, I won't say I, I didn't start, but we didn't make the playoffs when I was there, but I, I felt like, you know, watching it, you know, I, I had a vision with Tim Connolly. I talked to Tim Connolly a lot, and he's the GM now, president, vice president um, with Minnesota. But his vision was just to build something that will last for a long time. And I think passing it down to Calvin Booth, um, he's seeing that. So I know Tim is happy. I know, you know, Sharky is, um, is happy. He's equipment manager, Mike Malone, and all those guys are happy. So I just think that. Uh, it's good for the city. Um, it's just good for basketball to have a team um, in that region be NBA champions. You got an opportunity to play with Kyle Lowry, who is beloved here in the city of Toronto um, when you were at Villanova. So Kyle Lowry, as the competitor, his longevity, um, his ability to just keep pushing and pushing buttons at the same time, um, just, I guess, as a friend and a former teammate, what's like watching Kyle Lowry still in the NBA and still doing what he does best? Yeah, it was cool to see him in the finals. Um, yeah, also have Colin Gillespie, uh, one of our young guys that was on the Denver Nuggets. But it was cool to watch him just get out there, you know, push the ball and just create havoc, just be a little pit bull, a little net all over the place. Um, that's something that he does really well. But it was just cool to see him fight like that in the last game. Um, he had some great games in the Eastern Conference um, against the Boston um, Celtics. So it just it was cool to just see him out there. Um, sturdy. I think one of the commentators said he was the oldest guy on the floor, so that made me feel old. But <laughs> just to see him out there, just continuing the fight and lead the team, that was uh, the special moments for someone like me, who helped him um, a lot when we were at school. Um, so that was that was cool for me. It's funny because Kyle Lowry grew so much in front of our eyes being in Toronto uh, as long as he did. I mean, he came over first. It was almost like he was sort of a humbled player where, you know, things didn't work out uh, in Houston where he came from. And and he didn't really know. It didn't really seem like he was sure where he was going or where he was headed. And all of a sudden he grows into his role and he becomes so beloved, becomes an NBA champion. And he has this new air of confidence or he always had confidence, but like he was accomplished. He was uh, a guy who, uh, you know, overcame a lot to become 
become the basketball player that he did. Now he gets to have, you know, the last chapter of his career here in Miami. But I wonder because, you know, we've seen the Kyle Lowry, but you've seen a different Kyle Lowry in college. I wonder what Kyle Lowry was like when he was a student at Villanova. Yeah, he was a good kid. He, uh, he, he tested everyone's um, patience there, but uh, he just was, he was trying to figure it out and he wanted to win. He wanted to compete at the highest level. And there was some, at Nova that, at that time, there was some really good guards that was in front of him. So he was trying to figure out how he could fit in uh, with the guys that was, you know, a couple of years older than him or a year older than him. And like I said, he tested everyone's patience every day. You could still, you could see that he's still doing it. But I think that from him having the success that he has had with the Toronto Raptors, it comes from a Messiah a lot. I think when uh, Messiah put him on a trading block and he was going to trade him to the Knicks, but it didn't happen. I think that lit a fire where he knew um, he wanted to be in Toronto. He wanted to do some special things there. And, you know, I, I the whole time just playing around that time, you would think that the trade candidate would be um, Kyle Lowry and not DeMar DeRozan. But they ended up trading DeMar again, Kawhi, and won the championship in the rest of history. Okay, we got to ask you because we got the opportunity. The craziest Kyle Lowry story from Villanova that you can tell on the radio, <laughs> if there is one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now the crazy, the, the craziest story is, um, I think my junior year, his freshman year, we were in, I think we were, in, yeah, we were in Tennessee going to play in a. We was going to play Florida in the Sweet 16. Mm-hmm. Well, to go to the Sweet 16 and play North Carolina. And they had some really good guards. And, you know, coach couldn't find Cal. And then everyone was like, well, we just saw him here and um, eating. So, we, we like, where did he go? And we were looking for Cal. We're looking for Cal. And he's under the table eating. <laughs> and then he had, like, a little nervous thing, like, when he was younger where – he wouldn't express certain things um, out loud. He would hold them in, but he would want to be alone. And he, he had training table under under the table right before the game. And then he went out and had one of the best games of the season. Well, look at that. We learn something new every day about wow. Kyle Lowry. And he's uh, he's not afraid of the limelight now. So he, he got through whatever that was. And he's an NBA champ, at least here. So that's a great story. I appreciate you coming on. And uh, it was fun to chat. Thanks so much for your insight. And and uh, enjoy the off season of watching. And we'll chat next year, maybe when we got some more Raptor stuff and some Darko talk we can have. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's Randy Foy, a former NBA guard, had opportunity to play under Darko Rayakovic and played with Kyle Lowry at Villanova and had some opportunity to play with Jokic and Mike Malone. So he's got a lot of insight on all things NBA right now. Yeah, again, I mean, you keep, uh, you hear these interviews and you hear people talk about Darko Ryakovich, you get uh, pretty excited. I mean, a guy who wants to be in the gym, a guy who's always pushing you to be a better shooter, a guy who's just committed to making individuals better is a mm-hmm. great thing. And again, this is not like a contrast thing. This isn't, hey, he does this, the previous guy didn't do that. I don't know how it really went down, but we're our focus now is on Darko. And I continue to like the things that we hear about the new Raptors coach. Interesting story there about Kyle Lowry. Yeah, I don't see that in him. No. He's grown a lot I since mean, his time at Villanova. I mean, everybody grows up, you know, since college, since their time in college. Uh, wouldn't have expected him to say something like hmm. that, though. I, I would have thought the, the confidence that Kyle has shown has been something that's uh, been there forever. Yeah, well, sometimes you got to get in the... 
get the gym at Villanova and get, you know, your rookie year. I'm sure they got him out of his bubble a little bit there. Maybe I should do the show from another table. I don't think you should do that. Uh, we're waiting to get Bobby Webster on the line, Toronto Raptors general manager. Want to quickly talked. do... Oh, no, we do have Bobby now. We cannot make Bobby wait. And we will not do that. Uh, Bobby, uh, we appreciate you coming on this morning. Thanks for having me. How's everybody doing? Uh, we're doing pretty good. So uh, we're doing... Everyone's doing research on Darko Rayakovich, of course. Yeah. And it says on his profile that he's an espresso connoisseur. So <laughs> are we going to be able to satisfy his caffeine needs here in Toronto? I think so. It's a great, uh, great coffee city. You know that. Lots of good espresso. So uh, if you give me your top two recs, I'll, I'll pass them along to him this morning. Uh, we, we might need recommendations from you, but not everything uh, is open we're when we're coming to the show. studio. We got we to gotta have our coffee locked in, but uh, yeah, we, we slim pickings at 6 a.m. So, so uh, from dark roast to dark horse, uh, not many people had... Uh, Darko Rayakovich on their radars, but you guys did. Uh, it went through the process. You said that maybe he wasn't the guy, at least that was top of mind to start. But I wonder, he was on your radar. So how did he first surface on your guys' radar? Yeah, a little bit behind the curtain. You know, when we start this process first, you're saying, okay, what are we looking for in a candidate? And I think you start to make calls around the league. You know, some of the teams uh, that previously did head coaching searches are just people that, you know, Masai, myself, or, you know, other people in their front office have relationships with. And I'd say three or four people that, you know, we all really trust. He said, listen, talk to Darko. He's really interesting. Kind of, you know, don't know if he's ready, but, like, he kind of makes sense. So we um, we jumped on a call with him, I think, probably, you know, very early, maybe the week after, um, you know, we started the process. And it was, like, you know, really impressive, really is probably you all saw yesterday, thoughtful, smart, um, really diverse basketball life experiences around the world. So we brought him in twice in person to Toronto and, you know, just kind of every step along the way, he just exceeded expectations, um, had him interact with some different people on our staff. And, you know, I think what, what everyone will, will learn to appreciate and, and enjoy with Darko is he's um, very thoughtful, um, really smart, cares about, you know, the interpersonal relationships with staff and players and, um, you know, just really high marks all around. And so really lucky to get him. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't necessarily at the top of most, you know, kind of list of, of who would be the next uh, Toronto Raptors head coach. Yeah, we certainly got that same vibe while watching him yesterday and having opportunity to hear um, his media availability, at least in, in our network as well. Uh, charismatic, obviously really cares about the team and the community and the culture that you're having there with the Toronto Raptors. But when we talk about the basketball, the X's and O's, his on-court philosophy. Was there something that he shared with you that really solidified that this was going to be your guy, um, personality and all the charisma aside? Yeah, I think it starts a lot with his his track record with with player development, um, developing guys. I think he said it yesterday, just having guys get better, improve every day. Um, I think that's a big one that, that, you know, implicit in that is a lot of structure and discipline and accountability. And so I think that was a, importance for us with a, a group of our younger players. Um, but at the same time, you know, good relationship with veterans. He's coached, uh, you know, Oklahoma City, Phoenix, and Memphis. And so those are all um, teams that have had a lot of recent success. And so um, at the same time, being able to coach, you know, star players and Fred and, and Pascal and a young, uh, you know, young, you know, budding talent in Scotty Barnes. And so I think kind of hit all of those. It has experience with, with development, has experience with veterans, um, and then obviously overarching with everything is winning and, and doing that within a winning environment, um, I think is the best way to develop those type of players. And in any interview process, you might be asked to like show your work or explain how, you know, this situation, how you were able to show your value. And, uh, you know, you could look at the teams that he's involved been involved in, but I wonder if there's a player that sort of embodies 
what his process is. I mean, Desmond Bain was brought up yesterday. Uh, he spoke about him on, on our Raptors show uh, at Sportsnet 590, the fan. But is there a player, a situation, a team, an iteration of a team where Darko's work is best shown? Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to, you know, specify anyone just to, to point them out or to, to, to not acknowledge somebody else. But I think um, Oklahoma City, when they were young and developing, right, they, they had a, a really interesting young core. They made it to the NBA Finals. And I think recently with Memphis, you've seen um, kind of their growth over the past few years and, and kind of becoming a relevant team and, you know, playoff team, you know, potential contender. So I think part of winning organizations at the same time bringing up young players the right way. So um, that's where we think we are. Um, the challenge, as it always is, is to do that and win. And I think that, uh, you know, we're here to support him and we're here to put everything around him. Uh, both staff-wise, but also on the court to do that. We're speaking with Bobby Webster, Toronto Raptors general manager. So if you're looking at young talent, you, you can stop right at Scotty Barnes, of course, one of the most exhilarating young talents in the league. So in which ways do you think that Darko can help Scotty or help um, this, this young team in terms of his development in his third season here? Right, so it's an important offseason for Scotty. He knows that uh, he's working hard every day. Um, I think probably what we saw last year is just playing with uh, force and intensity every single game. I think the the natural talent there, ball handling, sharing the ball with others, obviously improving his shooting. Um, I would say there's no kind of magic pill with Scotty other than you know just continue to hard work. Um, he'll continue to get better. He's only 21 years old, um, but I think for Darko, just establishing that routine um, and expectation that we we'll, you know we all expect out of Scotty. Uh, part of the rationale from yourself and Masai Ujiri yesterday uh, when speaking to the value that Darko brings was that he can coach in any sort of situation, whether this is a team that's trying to win a title, a team that's rebuilding, a team that's somewhere in the middle. But every situation can be optimized, right? So if you're looking at Darko, what's like the type of team he would be best suited to coach? It's a good question. I think, you know, inherent in being able to coach a bunch of different teams is high character, work ethic, um, creating a good environment for his staff and for the players to thrive in. And so I think um, you never want to hire a coach specific to a certain roster or to a specific situation. And so we really just valued a bit more of the universal characteristics as opposed to saying this specifically is going to work with this player or this style of play. Um, I think it's probably fairly clear from last season and, and after we acquired Pirtle at the deadline, um, you know, defensively, we can play a lot of different ways. And I think that that came, you know, through with interviewing Darko, but also interviewing some of the other candidates that um, style of play defensively is just a, it's a versatile roster um, and probably, you know, more of the low hanging fruits on the offensive end and style of play and moving the ball and, you know, playing a bit more unselfish as we've talked about, um, you know, throughout the season. So I think that that is kind of how we see him, uh, you know, adjusting to this roster. Uh, a European coach rising to prominence is a little bit differently different, uh, at least when looking at the NBA, right? Because they have to prove themselves in Europe, then they have to prove themselves probably at a lower level here in North America, and they have to prove themselves to get to the NBA. It's almost like they have to do it a couple times, but you know, it doesn't really matter where you come from. If you prove yourself at the NBA level, you're going to get a chance. However, there might be differences, right? So when looking at Darko and looking at other candidates who haven't uh, coached overseas, are there like identifiable, easily, easily identifiable differences between candidates that, you know, are European and candidates that exclusively have coached here in North America? There are. I think Darko sits a bit in the middle, right? He, he grew up in Europe. He came over uh, to the U.S. at a fairly young age, at least professionally. Um, so he's been in, you know, 
coaching in, in the U.S. for, you know, over 10 years now. So I think he kind of fit the right balance. At the same time, you know, we're Toronto. We're the only international team. So, you know, I think it makes a bit more sense for us. Um, everyone that's from here lives in Toronto, um, travels around Canada. I think it's it's a very international uh, city, international country. And so I think that part of it, um, at least hopefully for him, feels a bit more, uh, you know, closer to home coming from Memphis. So I think uh wasn't anything that precluded. I think there's always going to be a difficulty culturally, um, just growing up in different places. But I think as we've all learned, you know, I think having that diverse experience is, is beneficial and maybe even preferred in, in today, you know, in 2023, to be able to connect with players. The NBA, I believe, now is over a quarter international from a player perspective. And maybe from a coaching perspective, it's lagged a bit behind. Um, but we think, you know, obviously now is the right time and, and the right environment for him to succeed. We're speaking with Bobby Webster, Toronto Raptors general manager. Okay, so the NBA draft is already next Thursday. Um, came, kind of snuck up on us quick here. Um, I wonder what you think of the depth compared to previous years and, and maybe the type of player you guys will be targeting at 13th and do they have to be Serbian? <laughs> uh, we like 13. Uh, we think there's a lot of players there. And I don't just say that, you know, some years you're hoping for guys to slide just mm-hmm. to kind of make it, but we feel really comfortable. Um, there's obviously talent at the top with, with the obvious uh, name, uh, but throughout the draft, we, we feel like, you know, we'll get somebody that we really like at 13 as far as specific skill set. I think things are so, um, you know, transitional and the NBA players are coming and going. You just really want to take best available. So obviously we're going to, prioritize the things we always do, you know, high character, skill set, uh, positional size, uh, two-way player. Um, it's so hard, you know, to play the guessing game every day we do it. And we sit, sit in the room and say, can you mock draft it out? And who's the best case at 13? Who's the worst case of all the guys we like? But that's kind of the fun of, of the draft and fun of, you know, evaluating these guys. But um, no, we'll always take best available, but uh, you'll probably see another Raptor type player be drafted. Uh, so progression was the priority uh, that you outlined when we spoke last, which was the start of this past season. And that's still clearly paramount at the individual level. This team needs to improve uh, at the individual level to take a step forward. But in terms of team progression, is improving on 41 wins the priority this season, this upcoming season? Or is the organization okay with taking a small step back to take steps forward? Yeah, I think, you know, we want to play more together. I think that was the biggest one you know, kind of takeaway we came out of last year is um, there were times, you know, I think not for anything malicious, but, you know, players, whether they're playing for their numbers or playing for themselves. And so we wanted to really just re-implement a a chemistry, a camaraderie, players sacrificing, uh, playing their roles for the betterment of the team. Does that result in um, 42 wins, 43 wins? I think that's not the priority, but more to get this team back together. It went, you know, inherent in some of the decision-making with the coaching staff, was that and so with a, a new coach in Darko, um, kind of a fresh start, uh, does it feel a bit more exciting and different? Um, and can we kind of glue the team together in a better way? Uh, last one for you here, Bobby, and we definitely appreciate the time. Uh, you know, it took a while to make this coaching hire, and, and uh, there's no nothing wrong with that because you're looking for the right candidate and uh, you guys hope you arrived at it. But I wonder if it was a bit difficult to bounce back from this season because it was emotional letting go of Nick Nurse, who's so important to this franchise. Uh, what was it like, you know, recovering from this season, bouncing back and moving forward? Did it take a toll on the organization, what we saw this year and the decisions that had to have been made at the end of the season? Well, you know, the playing game was a disappointing way to go out, not how anyone expected. Um, 
However, you know, I'm sure, you know, anyone, there's only one winner at the end of the day, so there's always going to be disappointment. But I think for us, we're, you know, we've been together for a while here, resilient, tough, won together, lost together. So I, I don't, I wouldn't say this year specifically was tough. It was tougher because we let a lot of people that, you know, personal relationships you care about go. But no, I think we're excited, rejuvenated, energized. The draft is here, free agency is here. And, you know, by the time Summer League here, we'll, uh, it'll be, uh, you know, it'll be in the rear view mirror. So no, we're excited. We're, you know, yesterday was the start of that outdoors free ice cream sandwiches, all the good stuff. So we're ready to go. Well, Bobby, I appreciate you taking the time this morning. Uh, Best of luck with the big decisions and the draft coming up. And we'll look forward to chatting with you at the start of next season. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much. That's Bobby Webster, Toronto Raptors general manager. Nothing makes people feel better than a little ice cream. Free ice cream. Who doesn't love a good ice cream sandwich? Um, Yeah. Great to chat. Great to get some insight there. Like that answer about unity and team dynamic, maybe being forefront and not necessarily... 42, 43 wins. Anyway, all right, lots to come on our station today. Uh, appreciate all the texts in for the Wake and Rake. We're just going to quickly just go through what we've decided. We went on uh, just a whim here, but we're going to go Braves on the run line. That was a submission from Corey from Port Hope. Justin's going to go with over in the Blue Jays-Orioles game, and I'm going to go with Tampa Bay to beat the unstoppable Oakland Athletics on the run line altogether, plus 410. That's your Wake and Rake. Um, thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day. We'll be back on a baby Friday.